Hey there, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that has walked all the way to the 13th through the 24th lines of Canto 2 and Purgatorio. All of Inferno lies behind us. It's season one of this podcast. Wow, go back if you're <laughs> dropping in here. Whoa, what a place to drop. We are in the second canto, as I said, at Purgatorio. This is my English translation. You can find it on my website, Mark Scarborough, not Scarborough, but Scarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can read along. You can print it off. You can drop a comment. You can print it off to make notes on it. Do what you like. That's why it's there. This is the move into the first of two major incidents in this canto. We had a prologue section in the first 12 lines. Now we're moving out to the first of the two big incidents inside Purgatorio Canto 2. Let's set off. And behold, right there in the mists of the morning, like Mars glowing red through the fog and suspended low above the sea's western edge, there appeared to me an I hope I'll see it again. A light that was coming so fast across the sea that nothing can compare to its flight. I turned my eyes away for a moment to ask a question of my guide Virgil, but then I saw it again, seemingly brighter and bigger than before. Then on either side of it, there appeared something that seemed so white, I I really had no idea what. And then something even whiter, just below it. Oh, that seems a bad place to break it, but that's where we're going to break it at line 24. It seems as if we just are rolling into the story, and I stopped. That's okay. We need to do a few things with this passage. We need to talk about Mars. We need to talk about things that are occurring in this passage that are resonant with moments in Inferno that lie behind us. And we also need to talk about a little bit of the problem of the pilgrim in this passage. The passage begins, and behold, and we've come to that prelude about the sun rising and aurora turning orange and all that gorgeousness, and then we get this echo, behold. It's such a biblical term, behold the man, and behold, it's low, if I wanted to translate it as it often is in English. You know, just this kind of biblical call out. This indicates that we have moved from that atmospheric prelude into a narrative moment. Something is happening, and indeed it is. This thing is coming. This bright white thing is on its way. Right there in the mist of the morning, like Mars, glowing red through the fog and suspended low above the sea's western edge. Let's just start right there. Like Mars. This is an interesting simile. We've had a couple similes before in Purgatorio, both times about the pilgrim Dante and Virgil being like people who are lost or like people who don't quite know the way. This simile is much more formal. It's much more what we're used to from back in Inferno, not a kind of commonplace uh, simile about an emotional landscape as a way to explain interiority, but this is much more 
formal in its focus, like Mars glowing red through the fog and suspended low over the sea's western edge. Let's say a couple things about this wildly formal simile. The first of three wildly formal similes in this canto. For one thing, it's about Mars, and we should just contrast this to the first canto of Purgatorio. There, it was all about Venus. Venus was the morning star, the star that was rising, and here we've had a change to Mars, and we should note that change of tone that is really important to us. What does that mean? Why do we go from Venus to Mars, from Canto 1 to Canto 2. Well, the first thing that probably comes to your mind if you know mythology is going from love to war. You might think, well, wait, what war? What battle? Think about it this way. Maybe we're going from the church that preaches love. Just give this to me. Um, You know that I am not a Christian, but in order to interpret this poem, I have to step pretty hard into Christian theology. So maybe part of what we're doing is we're moving from the church that practices love to what is called the church militant, the church that is confronting the world, the church that is at battle with worldly forces in Dante's day. Yikes. That would mostly mean the Crusades. But maybe that's part of that love-war battle that is going on between Venus and Mars. There may be a deeper contrast. Mars is red, right? It says Mars is glowing red through the fog. So, when you know, in the morning, the fog is still out. Imagine a marshy area with fog. And it's pre-dawn, and Mars is up in the sky. And I know this is hard to imagine, but in Dante's day, Mars is much more visible and much redder. In Dante's day, Andromeda looks like a galaxy in the sky because of the lack of light pollution. But, okay, let's just skip over that and the gross light pollution of our age and just say that in his day, Mars would be much more vibrantly red. I mean, still listen, it's still vibrantly red. I live in very rural New England and I see it red, but even I know I am subjected to light pollution. And if I were in a darker landscape, it would appear even more red. So, You're at this place, and Mars is coming up, and it's kind of piercing through the fog with this red. That red stands in direct contrast to the white that's coming, the white, bright thing that's coming. And maybe that contrast is important, the red to the white. Now, you can take this in Christological terms and go from the blood to purity, Christ's sacrifice, to the redemption purity, red to white. But maybe there's just also an emotional difference, a kind of fear at red, a kind of scary battle-like fear toward red versus white, which is hard to pin down, which maybe signifies innocence or purity, but at the same time, Dante wouldn't necessarily know this, but at the same time is a kind of empty color. It it doesn't have as much, necessarily as much, emotional resonance inside of it. I know, I know, and my sheets are bleached beautifully white. Of course, I feel really nice about them, so it has an emotional resonance, but you know what I mean? Not quite as pronounced as red, and maybe that dichotomy is really important. Maybe that's indicating the pilgrim's mood. The pilgrim is in a red space, orange sky, after all, with aurora. The pilgrim is in a reddish space, and what's coming is 
white in direct contrast. There may be yet another way to look at this, and I don't want to go too deep into this because we're going to bring up these problems later, but there may be a reference to Dante's unfinished philosophical treatise, The Convivio, or The Banquet. In Convivio, Book 2, Chapter 13, Lines 20 through 24, there is a large discussion of the position of Mars. In this part of the Convivio, Dante is trying to work out the influence of each of the spheres of the heavens. And remember, he thinks the sun is on a sphere. So the moon, the sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. He's trying to figure out what are their influences. And when he discusses the influence of Mars, one of the things he brings up in the Convivio is that Mars influence are musical abilities, that it brings up music inside of humans. Well, you don't know this yet, but this canto is full of music. You may remember it from our read-through, but this canto is going to be full of music. We may be being cued there, but here's the problem, and we're going to come back to this problem later. We would have have to have read the Convivio, and Dante didn't publish it, and we don't really know that he circulated it. So we'd have to have read the Convivio to catch that connection. And this is an unpublished work that was circulated very limitedly in Dante's day. So who would catch that connection? Let me tell you that that connection is so tenuous or so difficult with the Convivio that it wasn't proposed first until 1568. I mean, you may say now, oh my gosh, look, Dante wrote this work to Convivio. It talks about Mars and music. This is going to be a canto full of music. Oh, it's clearly sitting there. But it wasn't so clear for the first 250 years of commentary on comedy. Not until Bernardino Daniello brought it up in 1568 had anybody ever connected this appearance of Mars with that moment in the Convivio. So it might not be quite as obvious as we now see it in retrospect. Or if it is obvious to the passage, then it's sort of a unbelievable inside joke. We, as a reader who perhaps has not read the Convivio, and maybe you even now haven't read it, but don't even have the possibility of reading it, as Dante's readership wouldn't in his own day, his own unpublished, unfinished work, we would be left with this Venus versus Mars, love versus war, red versus white. We'd be left in that landscape. Mars is glowing red through that fog, and it's suspended low over the sea's western edge. And the words used there, suol morino, the bottom of the sea, the sea's edge, the sea's depths. Oh, man. That is an exact pickup term from, guess where? Ulysses in Inferno, Canto 26, line 29. <laughs> Those words were used for Ulysses and basically what's happening to him and what will happen to him as he sails out of the West. It's so interesting that Ulysses just keeps coming up 
in these passages through resonances, word choices, rhymes, maybe the missing Gibraltar in the last episode of this podcast, maybe so many ways that Ulysses comes up, which leads us to say that the poet must have had a great deal of purgatorio in mind by the time he was composing the Ulysses episode in Inferno. I mean, after all, we get this glimpse of this giant mountain and purgatory, and I told you, oh my gosh, there's our glimpse, mountain, ah, here it comes, purgatory. This clearly indicates that the poet is already working ahead by the time he's at that episode. So we've got this simile about Mars, you know, red through the fog, suspended low, right on the edge. And right then there appeared to me, and this is what I want to stop on, and I hope I'll see it again, a light that was coming so fast across the sea. I hope I'll see it again. There's the poet. (laughs) He's right there. So he says, you know, hey, I'm standing here on the shores of Purgatory, and I see this bright light headed toward me, and I hope I'll see it again. Now, there's a couple problems with this. One, is he anticipating his own redemption? Yeah. He definitely is anticipating or at least hoping for his own redemption. Does he know that he will be redeemed? Well, hmm. back in Inferno, Karen, before he gets in Karen's boat, Karen says to him, no, 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 you can't get in my boat. You have got to go in a lighter boat where you're headed. Well, here comes the lighter boat. Karen has indicated that this method of transport that's arriving is the one that ultimately Dante will be a part of. It's a little bit of a quibble, but uh, he seems to put a little doubt. Oh, I hope I get to see this again. I hope I live worthy enough to be here one more time after I'm dead. And yet we've kind of been told that that will already happen. So then it seems a little coy. It's a little bit of a weird stance from the poet. I don't want to put too much weight on. I realize I banged on way too long about this thing. But it does have a little bit of, um, what do I want to say, disingenuous tone, given what we already know. So this light's coming so fast across the sea that nothing can compare to its flight. It's volar. And again, there's another reference to Ulysses and his volo, his flight, his mad flight, his flight of folly. But this is a different kind of flight. And if you just think about it, this thing is coming in the same direction that Ulysses would have come from. It's following in Ulysses' path. He had a flight of folly. This is clearly a completely different kind of flight, a flight of light or a light-filled flight. I turned my eyes away for just a moment to ask a question of my guide. And of course, he means Virgil, of my guide. There's that humanity again. There's that hesitancy. Here's this bright thing coming towards you. And you stop and you look at Virgil, who is silent. Virgil apparently still doesn't know what this is. We're going to even see that more in the next passage. Virgil has to discover what this is. He discovers it before the pilgrim, Dante, but still right here, Virgil's of no use. But I love the humanity, the hesitancy, this 
unbelievable bright light force is coming. And I turned to look at Virgil to say, <laughs> it's better. I turned to look at one of the damned and say, well, what is this? What is this thing that's coming our way? Ah, oh, so great, right? Turn to one of the damned. Who else would you turn to at a moment like this? I turned my eyes away for a moment to ask a question of my guide Virgil, and then I saw it again, seemingly brighter and bigger than before. Oh, look at that. Perspective. The boat, well, it we'll find out it's a boat. We don't know it in this passage. The boat is getting bigger. I know that we are always taught that perspective is a function of the Renaissance. And yes, of course, Da Vinci. And yes, of course, Michelangelo, the mathematics of perspective. But let me say that medievals were not without a notion of perspective. I don't don't know how this occurs that people think somehow medievals didn't have any perspective until the Renaissance. Here it is. The boat's getting bigger as it gets closer to them. But also notice, and this is what's really good, it's getting brighter. So the light actually changes. The quality of the light changes. Now that is starting to edge up toward Renaissance scientific fact and away from medieval notions of how light works. Then on either side, the passage finishes, there appeared something that seemed so white, I really had no idea what. Notice this emphasis on not knowing. And then something even whiter just below it. We'll have an explanation of this in that next passage. But notice right now, there are two white things and then a third white thing. This is a Trinitarian whiteness that's approaching us. It's got three points, two points, and then a point below it. I mean, come on. This is this Trinitarian light that is coming at us. And I love that in the middle of this incredibly Christian Trinitarian light source, the pilgrim is still saying, I don't know what this thing is. Something's coming and I don't get it. So brilliant. There's no initial recognition. And I love the fact that in this passage, there are two balanced phrases. There is that phrase from the poet, I hope I'll see it again. And then there is that phrase from the pilgrim. I really didn't know what it was. And notice how those are both balanced. Notice how they're both sitting as kind of appositional or to the side of the text. And notice how they're both slightly in parallel in terms of how disingenuous they are. I'm not saying that the pilgrim would know that this is an angel, but Cato has said he's got to clean up to meet the first minister from heaven. Who who else can that be? What else could that possibly be, the first minister from heaven? Furthermore, he's in the good part of the afterlife. This thing's got to be full of the redeemed and, by definition, angels. So really didn't know what this was? Uh, You sure you didn't? I think Cato kind of informed you what you were going to meet or who you were going to meet. And I think you should kind of know where you are at this point. So both phrases, it's so great. Both phrases in the text are balanced from the poet and the pilgrim. They're both in parallel. They're both appositional. And they're both slightly disingenuous. Can you be wrong in purgatory? I'm going to keep asking you this question. Can you be wrong in purgatory? And the answer (laughs) is yes. And better, in a church bent on stamping out heresy, 
in a theology that is becoming increasingly militant about torturing heretics like Cathars, inside of that, Dante is positing that there is a spot in the afterlife in which you are indeed redeemed, but you're just a bit wrong. Let me read this passage one more time. It's so brilliant. I love it so much. Lines 13 through 24 of Canto 2 of Purgatory. I love Canto 2 more than I can say. So astounding. And behold, right there in the mists of the morning, like Mars glowing red through the fog and suspended low above the sea's western edge, there appeared to me, and I hope I'll see it again, a light that was coming so fast across the sea so that nothing could compare to its flight. I turned my eyes away for just a moment to ask a question of my guide Virgil, but then I saw it again, seemingly brighter and bigger than before. Then on either side of it there appeared something that seemed so white, I really had no idea what. And then something even whiter just below it. Oh, you gotta stick with me for the appearance of this thing, this unbelievable bird from heaven that's coming. It's coming up in the next passage on Purgatorio. If you don't mind, rate this podcast, even write a review. That would be terrific. And subscribe to it. Because if you subscribe, you won't miss an episode of the Purgatorio. And how could you miss Purgatorio? Come on. How can you miss a poem that says you might be able to be wrong or misguided or at least hesitant even when you know what you're supposed to do oh man how human can it get see i love purgatorio and there's so much more ahead i can't wait for it i'm mark scarborough and i'll see you soon